Welcome to the Condo Vultures Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Zalewski. This is the Real Estate Players Profile. It is a one-on-one interview that I do every Friday with someone in the South Florida real estate industry who's influential and can also offer some insight to our listener. And who's our listener? Well, it's anybody involved with real estate in South Florida, whether you're a real estate professional, you are an investor, or you're somebody who's considering investing. Um, that's basically who we're trying to reach. So who do I have for this particular episode? And by the way, this is episode number 69 in our podcast series. I have Amir Karangi. He is the publisher and founder of The Real Deal. Amir began The Real Deal back in 2003, ultimately came to South Florida in 2008, and now he has spread out, and uh, him along with Stuart Elliott, who's the uh, editor-in-chief at The Real Deal, they now have a location, or they're now covering, I should say, um, uh, Chicago, Los Angeles, South Florida, New York. They have a national, and they also have a tri-county area, which is up in the New York area. But they're looking at going into San Francisco, as well as Houston and Dallas in the state of Texas. So a lot of things going on over there. Um, uh, Amir is also going to be rolling out in uh, 2012 a brand new service called uh, TRD Pro, which is going to be based on data, putting data in the hands of those people who are interested in um, ultimately playing a real estate game down here. So it's going to be a fascinating conversation. We're going to talk about Amir, who is a habitual offender when it comes to publishing. He built up two publications that he was able to successfully sell off. I'm going to ask him during the interview, is he also going to look at sell the real deal or possibly even take it public? Remember, he's based up in New York City and, uh, you know, he always seems to be ahead of the curve on a variety of different things. Amir's going to talk about coming to the United States um, uh, after the Islamic Revolution in Iran. He basically was smuggled out of Afghanistan, uh, excuse me, out of Iran by way of Afghanistan before he ultimately came to the United States. It's a fascinating story. After college, he set up a newspaper down in uh, Southern California, right on the edge of, <laughs> believe it or not, um, the Mexican border. And uh, things were going very well until he ran into a problem with the cartel, or at least potentially the cartel in Tijuana. So, fascinating story and I know you're going to love it. I know you're going to enjoy it. Now, before we get started with the podcast, I want to remind you if you're not yet a subscriber to the Kind of Vultures podcast, uh, please go ahead and do so wherever you get your podcast. If you like what we're doing, please give us a rating as well as a comment. Uh, the more ratings and comments we get, uh, the more likely we are to sort of help us or to move towards accomplishing our goal, which is try to bring straight talk to an overhyped real estate market in South Florida. And then finally, if you have a um, comment, you have a suggestion, you have a uh, question, you have a compliment, you have a complaint, we want to hear from you. Please send an email to inquiry at condovultures.com. That's I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com. One last tidbit. Um, I did write a column for The Real Deal. did it for somewhere in the vicinity of about five years or so. Uh, shut down that column back in 2016. So um, no affiliation, no conflict, nothing uh, here other than uh, respect for what The Real Deal and Amir and Stuart and Ina Cordell and uh, Catherine and Keith and everybody else are doing over there. So that being said, why don't you go ahead and fasten that seatbelt, lean back, and get ready to learn and laugh about the South Florida real estate market, the New York real estate market, and the overall market from Amir Karengi, the founder and publisher of The Real Deal. Are you a primary user or real estate investor who's in the market for a discounted South Florida condo? Are you searching in the markets of Greater Downtown Miami, Miami Beach north to Sunny Isles Beach, Hollywood north to Fort Lauderdale, or anywhere else east of I-95 in the Tri-County, South Florida region? If so, the buyer brokers at Condo Vultures Realty are here to assist you. Condo Vultures Realty is a licensed Florida brokerage that was established in 2006 to assist educated buyers in identifying, negotiating, and purchasing units at a discounted price. 
To speak with a buyer broker at Condo Vultures Realty, please call 305-865-5859 or visit our website, condovulturesrealty.com. Welcome back to the Condo Vultures Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Zalewski. I have... I've been looking forward to this podcast for quite some time. Who do I have on? I have a news junkie. I have somebody who basically launched the publication from the get-go back in 2003 in New York City, trying to bring straight talk to the real estate market. And lo and behold, he spread out all over the world, came down to Miami, he's out in LA, he's in Chicago, and who knows where he wants to go. Uh, who am I talking about? I'm talking about Amir Karangi. He's the founder and publisher of The Real Deal. Many of you have probably read it, you've heard of it, you've seen it. But you probably don't know too much about Amir, so I want to dedicate some time to sort of um, understand who Amir is, what he's doing, and where he's going. So um, let's get going. Amir, how's it going? Very good. Thank you for having me. Listen, it's, it's going to be fun. Let me tell you the rules of engagement before we get started, and we might have some new listeners who basically are going to tune in because they want to hear everything about you because they love you or maybe because they hate you, and they're going to try to use some yeah. of this information against you. <laughs> As long as they're following me on social media, it's okay. <laughs> exactly. So, so Amir, um, our only rule of engagement is uh, we look for straight talk and cursing, i.e. salty language, is permissible. So if you happen to slip, nobody's going to be too offended because we do have bankers and, and developers who listen to this, and chances are their mouth is much worse than uh, anything you or I can say. <laughs> right. Well, I'm not a Puritan, so you know that, that's good news for me. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Now, now, what I'd like to do is I'd like to do uh, three 20-minute segments. I know it seems like that's way too much, but chances are we're going to burn through it. I had Kobe Karp, the architect, on last week. We went for two hours. He told me, ah, there's no way we can talk for an hour. We went for two hours, so let's just sort of see how it goes. First 20 minutes is Well, well Kobe's a real talker. He, he's a real talker, Kobe, so you, know, you have it easy with him. Okay, well, you know, it's, it's interesting with Kobe um, uh, in that he was telling me about a, a project he's designing, a hotel in Mecca, um, being built with Palestinian Sunni Shia, and he is uh, originally from Israel. He's an Israeli-American. So talk about an interesting story. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So, that, that's good. Tell me. So, so for, first 20 minutes is about you and the real deal. Second 20 minutes is about what's going on currently. And then third 20 minutes is sort of about, the, you know, where do you kind of go from here? So um, uh, does all that work with you? Is that cool? Yeah, I love that you have an agenda. You know, I feel like all meetings should have an agenda. It really it creates purpose for everybody, and everybody understands where it's going. Perfect, perfect. So the, the softball uh, question, uh, where are you from originally, and how did you get to New York City? Because uh, New York City, to me, is much like Miami. Nobody's originally from there. They sort of they, – they end up there somehow, some way. So what, what's your Yeah, story? I agree. And New York City was always very intimidating for me. Well, my story is that – uh, it, it used to be intimidating for me before I moved here. I, my cousin used to work, uh, he was uh, working at Blackstone, and I used to come visit him when we were both roughly the same age uh, out of college. And I always found New York City to be absolutely intimidating. I was like, I never knew, I never could figure out uptown, downtown, west side, east side. It was just like also confusing back in the 90s for me. Uh, but, uh, you know, eventually, the more I came to visit, the more I started to love it. And I just remember uh, a friend of mine telling me, look, no matter what you want to do in your life, you're going to have to, New York City is the place to do it. He was like, can you imagine trying to uh, do media or trying to uh, meet with big clients and go to their headquarters and meet with people who can make decisions on your business and doing it like out of Oklahoma City or Kansas City or anywhere else outside of New York, where in New York, you could be in a building and you could have like 10, uh, you know, Fortune 500 companies in that one building, uh, you know, or in that one block of uh, New York City. 
So, you know, seeing that that sort of opportunity all laid out in one place, you know, steps away from each other, it made it really attractive to me knowing that, like, look, I can really make things happen here instead of, you know, sending out mail and, you know, calling people from another state trying to get uh, deals done, you know, uh, trying to get people from New York to, uh, you know, uh, pay attention to me. I thought it was very hard. And I thought New York would be a good place to make for a base because I felt like everybody who wanted to do anything, whether it was law, journalism, media, uh, arts, uh, whatever, real estate, it was all, you know, happening in New York. So it, it was a good place to set up a flag. But I'm originally from Iran. I'm uh, Muslim. I'm supposed to be Muslim. I'm a very bad Muslim. But uh, <laughs> you know, in Iran, if you're not uh, if you're not uh, identified as a different religion, they automatically uh, identify you on your birth certificate as a Muslim, and that's why they have such a high Muslim. Yeah. So like, if you don't say I'm Jewish or I'm Christian or something, they say, okay, well, he's Muslim. And uh, so you know, after the revolution, uh, a lot of the sort of the uh, elite class, not that we were part of the elite class, but a lot of the sort of the entrepreneurs and business people had to leave the country. It was the largest modern exodus in modern history. So you had 6 million people uh, leave the country. At the time, Iran's population was 24 million people. So you had 25% of the country leave in a matter of three years uh, because wow. of the Islamic revolution. And it was the first Islamic revolution in history. So like in, uh, so that never happened before. And uh, so my father was part of the people who, you know, who thought like it would be a good time to probably to leave. I mean, he, pro he for the first year, he didn't think that he was like, there's no way this could last. There's no way this government could last, uh, you know, uh, and he thought that we could stay there. And then after about a year, uh, his name popped up in the newspaper. And oh. anybody at that point who was like s sort of wanted for questioning, you never saw them again. And, you know, you know, hundreds of thousands of people got killed, I mean, executed. Oh. So it was uh, a good time to leave the country at that point. And it was a very, you know, uh, dramatic sort of a escape from Iran. But so many people had those stories, you know, like... Uh, so many people had to leave, uh, you know, through borders with horses to Pakistan and Afghanistan and with gun smugglers and then to find their way out to uh, out west. And, you know, we finally uh, left the country through uh, Afghanistan, uh, you know, with gun smugglers, me, my mom and my brother. My father was in hiding. And uh, my uh, and then we made it to Karachi in Pakistan. And from Pakistan, we made it to Paris uh, and in Paris, at the airport, they were like, I'm sorry, we have too many Iranians here. Uh, you know, just imagine the Syrian situation. The Syrian situation was only 800,000 Syrians, right? That's not, yeah, yeah. Imagine 6 million people going all over Europe and all over the West and all over that. So they, this was the first time the world had to deal with this kind of refugee crisis at, the, at that scale. So we get to Paris and Paris, in France, they're like, well, we can't take any more Iranians. Um, pick another country. We're going to have to hold you and you have to go to another country. And at the time, Spain wasn't such a, it's not the country it is today. Now it's a very, it's, you know, it's a great Western country. In the early 1980s, Spain was more part of Pan-Africa than it was part of Europe. So, it, you know, they were happy to have us and we went there, we were there for about six months and we couldn't uh, get a visa to the U.S. We had some family in the U.S. and we couldn't get a visa because just like every other country, oh, the, the Iran Contra thing happened. So they weren't taking any refugees from Iran. And, and there was already a lot of Iranians uh, at that point in the U.S. anyways. 
but we really wanted to come to the U.S., and we actually came illegally. So we landed in the airport without any documentation or anything. A friend of my father's, um, uh, you know, he had great trade with the U.S. and with Europe and stuff. He got us on a plane somehow. I was too young to remember how, but it was the, you know, uh, the first time I rode business class. But I was uh, eight years old, and he got us on a plane, and uh, we landed in JFK, and at JFK, they were like, well, we know you're Iranians, we're going to deport you. And this is before September 11th and a lot of the security that you have to go through now. And sure. we were like, well, we're not, we, we claim independency. They were like, no, we know you're Iranian. We're like, no, and you know, the lawyers told us to just claim independency no matter what they say. And they had to bring a translator to talk to my mom, and they brought an Iranian translator. And then there was this other guy there who was like a very angry guy. And he was like, you got to tell us the truth. We're not taking any more Iranians. And the translator was like, he was saying this to us in Farsi. He was like, don't worry about a thing. Everything's going to work out. Just keep crying <laughs> and claim the independency. So the guy who also worked for, you know, he was also for the immigration service, INS. And he was just totally, you know, this other guy was like raging. And the Iranian guy was just was like, don't worry about a thing. You know, keep crying. Everything's going to be okay, which, which actually worked. So we followed his lead. And, you know, I think it was like the fastest uh, green cards ever. Like we got our green cards within like eight months after we landed. And, you know, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. I, I, I always loved to be a writer. I always loved, uh, like I always wrote for my school papers, uh, you know, all through college and all through high school. And I always wanted to be a, you know, a reporter. And after college, I really tried to, uh, I always wanted to work for the Boston Globe. Uh, that was like where I, I, I was so sure I was going to land there. And after college, I tried my hardest to get onto the Boston Globe and I couldn't get a job there. And I was like, screw it, I'll get a job at the Boston Herald, I guess. And then I tried to get a job at the Boston Herald, and I couldn't get a job there either. I was like, shit, I, what am I going to do? I, like, those were my two plans, you know, because I wanted to stay in Boston. And um, so I decided after college, another one of my friends graduated, and we were like, let's start our own newspaper. Like, so we were like 22 years old. And we were like, let's start our own newspaper. Let's go to California. Meanwhile, we don't know anybody in California. We just thought there was good demand for co good content in California. And this was before the internet. So we, um, or this was right at the beginning of when the internet came out. And then, so we it drove across the country and we went to California and we had this business plan that was like on boards, you know, like on those big presentation boards. Uh, the, so we, we had this business plan and we went, we, we got a one bedroom apartment. We were living there and we were like, we just have to go to all these banks and uh, get money for a big idea. And we, we had this idea for sort of um, like an ocean drive, but for uh, Southern California, you know, so uh, no, it was no, called no, Coastal no. Yeah, if I could, here. sorry. You, so you were you were living in Los Angeles, and uh, and I just want to clarify for the audience because I'm not sure if you mentioned it. You went to Emerson College, uh, where you got a BA yes. in foreign relations and journalism up in the Boston area. So I just wanted to fill in. Yes, yes. Topics. Yeah, I was in, for college. I was there. Yeah, my brother was at Harvard, so we thought we would go to school in the same city. He was much smarter than I am. So, but uh, I was like, let me just go to one of the sixty colleges or universities around Boston. You know, I'll, at least I'll be around my brother, and uh, it'll be fun. And it was great. Uh, being in the same city together. And uh, so, you know, I, after college, I, uh, you know, we packed our bags. We drove across the country to start what coastal living. We, what, what, uh, it was a Honda Civic. It was a Honda Civic. Yeah. Two guys. <laughs> it was a, two guys in a Honda Civic. 
Man, we we made it across the country so fast. I think it took us like three days. We didn't sleep. We just drove straight across. We only stopped in uh, Las Vegas. It's three. It's it's about three thousand miles, I think. But uh, we only stopped in Las Vegas. That was the. Uh, we also stopped. He was like, "We should we stop and see uh, Grand Canyon?" I was like, "Nah, screw it." And then all of a sudden, we're driving across the country, and I'm like, "Holy shit, what is that?" And he was like, I think that's the Grand Canyon. And so we parked the car and we just like stared at it for like an hour and a half. And uh, it, it was breathtaking. You know, it was a really beautiful sight. I hadn't seen anything like that before. And uh, so we stopped there for a little bit and then we continued driving. And then we get to California. We already had our business cards designed and I knew how to work PageMaker. So, I'd, you know, at that point, if you knew how to work PageMaker, you were pretty much a publisher. Like that right. PageMaker, that, that publishing sort of software change the publishing business. Everybody who could access PageMaker, all of a sudden you took out like 40 people that you needed before to put together a newspaper or a magazine or any sort of a sort of a print publication. You took out like 40, 30, 40 people out of the, out of the sort of the process just by understanding PageMaker. So I had like one of those small Apple, um, you know, those Macs that was like all in one uh, apples. And uh, yeah, so I had, do, I had that and I had PageMaker on there and I was like, all right, let's, we could do coastal living on this. And then, you know, back then I didn't know, like we just went into banks, like retail banks. Imagine going to a retail bank and talking to the teller, like, hey, I'm here to pitch an investment. And then we didn't know the process. So they're like, you need to talk to our like assistant manager. And we would like talk to all these different managers. And obviously everybody was like, you're going about it the wrong way. This is not the kind of bank to do that. We wouldn't give you a loan on a business like this. It's too speculative and so on and so forth. And then we were like really determined to still do the the magazine. So we were like, what, what's the most expensive part of this process? And we, because we were so sold that the magazine was like such a hit, it's, it was going to be a hit. People from San Diego all the way to Santa Barbara could like take and, you know, uh, you know, be a part of this and um, or that they would be part of the readership. And so we were like, the most expensive part of this is the printing. So let's find a cure for the printing, and then uh, then that then we'll find figure out the other steps. And of course, for everything cheap, you know, you go down to Mexico. So yeah. we went down to Mexico to find a cheap printer. So we only, drove down on, only to find, uh, to a find a printer. Not, nothing else in Mexico. Nothing else in Mexico. We were like, let's go find else. a let's go find a printer. Yeah. So we hopped into the Honda Civic, and we go down <laughs> to Mexico, and of course. Printing is like 10 times more expensive in Mexico, believe it or not, because they don't have as many printers. And it's okay. also like it's all very dated stuff. They, like it, it wasn't cheap at all. It was like super expensive. But then what we found in Mexico, we were there for two days meeting with different printers. And what we found in Mexico was that everybody, there were so many Americans within 80 miles of the border, like from Ensenada down to the Tijuana border. Everybody who owned businesses, so many people who lived there year-round, retirees, criminals, you know, people, <laughs> you know, all sorts of people, Americans lived around the border of uh, Mexico. And 95% of them, believe it or not, did not speak Spanish. 95% of the people who lived around the border didn't speak like fluent Spanish. Like they would, so we were like, you know what would be great to create a newspaper for these Americans who are here? And, right. um, you know... Yeah, so yeah, because they didn't have anything, so we would just take Mexican news and translate it into um, into English, and so it, it you know we thought it would be a hit, but we still had to find the printer, 
And we came back to California with like a different sort of a business strategy. We were like, screw coastal living. That's not going to happen. We're going to go and have, do this sort of a newspaper and just translating news uh, for these guys. And we uh, started, a, we found a, a printing house in Long Beach where this woman had inherited it. And she had, she was a, uh, she was sort of a local, I hate to say this, but I'm guessing she'll never hear this, but she was like, she was sort of a drunk, you know, like, so she she had inherited this uh, business and she inherited a lot of other stuff from her uh, latest husband. And uh, she was, uh, she had uh, many houses in Mexico and she would, she had her own plane that she would go down to Cabo and La Paz and all these places. And uh, so uh, this guy we meet tells us that she has a real, this woman has a printing house and she has a real affinity for Mexico. So maybe she'll be interested in this. So we go to this woman and we're like, look, we have this great idea for a newspaper, but we can't afford the printing. We need to do the first uh, two printing on credit and then we'll give you the money for it. And then she was like, I love this idea. I think it's going to do really well. She was like, I'll give you the first four printings on credit. So you could, uh, yeah. So she was like, she was like, I think it's definitely going to hit if you guys do it right. And she turned out to be an amazing uh, mentor for us. You know, she, she gave us access to her offices where we could, we didn't have to just use my little Mac, you know, we could, and back then everything was like on three and a half inch uh, floppy disks. If you remember those. I do. I so do. we, uh, yeah. So we, uh, you know, we we start working with her, and, and she was belligerent. You know, she would start drinking, and she would get really rude. She was like, "Nobody wants to do business with a guy named Amir. Like we're in the, we just uh, we're we're doing uh, we're in war with Iraq. Who's going to want to do business with a guy? You have to change your name. I, I won't. Like every time she got drunk, she would like get really belligerent. I was like, I refuse to change my name. And then she was like, You have to go by like David or Joe or something. Like I was like, No, I'm not doing it. And then uh, so it like. This would always come up when uh, she would get drunk. But then, uh, and then, it, luckily, after the very first issue, we were in we were in the black. We had like amazing. Every local advertiser was in there. I mean, doesn't we didn't ask for a lot of money. It was like you could get a full page ad for like you know fifteen hundred dollars or a thousand dollars. And we had crazy distribution. Me and my partner were, and we hired um, under NAFTA for every. One American employee you had to hire nine uh, Mexican employees, okay. and, but Mexican employees then were so cheap. Like I, I could literally hire somebody for the day, and it would be like fifteen dollars or twelve dollars. Can you believe that? So this was back wow. in nineteen ninety three ninety four, and uh, so we uh, I'm sorry not ninety four I'm sorry this was like ninety five or ninety six I forget, but uh, so we hired all these uh, sort of Mexican uh, guys to help us distribute the newspaper and we would go to these like very busy strips in Tijuana in Rosarito and Ensenada <laughs> and we would just blast and we would have the newspaper be everywhere it became it got it got to be a huge hit you know so it was like uh it was uh, coming to be known as the Gringo Gazette you know so it was like this <laughs> Everybody loved it. It was it was it was called the South of the Border, and you know, but everybody really loved it. And uh, it like then we did the second issue, and there was a weekly paper. So we did the second issue, and you gotta remember, at this point, I did not sleep. Like I was working around the clock. I never yeah. knew I could work like that before. Like I like all of a sudden, thirty hours would go by, and we're like, holy shit, I haven't slept for over a day. You know, like yeah, and. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and back then I had the energy to do it. Now, like after 16 hours, I got to take a nap. But uh, 
So he, he, he was, uh, it, it came to be a hit, and then we got bigger and bigger advertisers. I mean, AT&T started advertising with us because they were trying to, you know, market to that audience. That was a good way to reach those Americans uh, who lived down there. And we got b- bigger and bigger advertisers, and it, and it was great. And we, for, we had a house, we rented a house for, from this uh, plastic surgeon from Newport who was going through a divorce. He had this beautiful uh-huh. house on the ocean, and he was like, and we met him at a bar, and he was like, look, I'm going through a divorce. I'm not going to be using the house. I just want you guys to like, use the house and just pay for the maintenance of it. And like the maintenance of it was like paying for water and you know electricity and stuff, which was nothing. And we had this beautiful house that we lived on the beach uh, there, and we ran the newspaper. And then we d- did it, and I was really content there. I was really happy, and uh, I couldn't believe that you know I was publishing uh, my own newspaper like at 22 years old. And okay, then uh, you know, Amir, uh, Amir I want to stop sure. you now. Now, what 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 town or what city were you were you were you based in? You were you were out of Tijuana or? So we had our house, the the surgeon's house in uh, Rosarita, but Rosarita, most okay. of the most of our advertisers were in Tijuana and Ensenada, and also Rosarita had a good audience too. And there were other okay. sort of uh, shanty towns, but the major American towns were uh, Ensenada, Rosarito, and Tijuana. Those were like where you found Americans still living. And in, so there was in, like a big retiree community in Rosarita and a big uh, sort of a criminal community in Tijuana that was like, you know, people running from the law and shit. But they still had to read. They were still consumers, you know. Of course. You still can't dis- discriminate. So, uh, that, so, but we also had a, we also kept our apartment in, uh, in uh, Long Beach in California. So, okay. so we would, when we came to California, we would stay there for a night because like all the a lot of the design and the print work happened in California, and then we would spend most of our time in uh, in uh, Mexico out of the week. So we spend about two days a week in California and four days or five days in Mexico. And and so were you actually producing any new content, or was it just you were translating um, articles? That no, we started. Uh, if we. No, we started only the crime stories we translated because we couldn't, you know, we couldn't do those and we didn't have the ability to. So we would go and get like criminals, like really sort of shocking criminal, like cartel stories, which a lot of it happened around the border. And we would translate that stuff. And then for we did a lot of original reporting, you know, like the like featurey stuff, you know, like talking to hotels and, uh, you know, just really featurey stuff uh, and uh, business. Like we had some business stuff about like tourism numbers and the amount of people like retirees moving down to Mexico and so on. And uh, so with then, Miami, uh, I guess from a Miami perspective, it'd be kind of like a New Times or up in New York would be like a Village Voice type of scenario. You guys yeah, kind of going totally. That. And that, okay. That was that was our uh, that was our target. You know, we we wanted it to be like uh, adventurous journalism, or like I, I hate to say it because people accuse me of that sometimes. But like it was it was like a tabloidy, you know. But it was not super tab, not about aliens and shit. But it was a bit tabloidy. But uh, it was fun, and you know, people loved reading it. People were looking forward to it, and then we started to get bigger and bigger advertisers, and then. We got uh, this, the president of Caliente. Caliente is the, um, was the gambling uh, uh, establishment for um, uh, for Mexico. So all the dog races, horse races, all that stuff went <laughs> through Caliente. 
And so they started advertising with us, and we were so happy. This guy was like, I, I love this uh, newspaper. I want, I want you guys to come and meet with me. So we went to Tijuana to meet with the guy, and uh, he had his office, Peter, was in a former zoo, but he kept all the animals there. So the, you park your car, and there's like bears and tigers and shit in the parking lot in a cage, in a big cage. And then you walk to the guy's office. It was like a 100-foot hallway that went to his office. And all alongside of the walls were like uh, glass tanks with alligators and like snakes and birds, and like everything. And it was like the most interesting office I've ever seen. And, you know, I'm dealing with billionaires here in New York City, and I still haven't seen an office as interesting as that guy's. I mean, he had like tigers and lions and everything. And so we go and meet the guy. He's like, I love this. He was like, I want to like take out advertising. Like I want to take out your back page or your center page. And he became a huge advertiser. And then we were so happy. We were like, I can't believe we got this guy. Week one goes by. We were like, great. We just added like, you know, whatever, $10,000, $8,000 to our bottom line. Uh, week one goes by. Week two, week three, the guy, we, there's no checks coming from the guy. Week oh. four, week five, no checks coming with, from this guy. And, you know, we were like running on fumes, you know, like there was no money. <laughs> like we were like barely breaking even. And so we were like, finally, my uh, partner there, he was like, you know what? Let's call this guy and tell him that if he doesn't pay us, we're going to write a story about Caliente. I was like, I don't want to take that route. You know, like, let's just stop taking out his ads. He was like, yeah, but the guy owes us like $50,000 for us. It, I mean, even now it's a lot of money. But back then, forget it. It was like a fortune. And then uh, so we called the guy. We we're like, look, we don't want to resort to anything. Just pay us our thing and let's just cut things off here. We need – and we probably jumped the gun a little bit, but – and the guy just stopped taking our calls. And then one day we were leaving our house and then the police stops us, like literally oh. two days after we make that phone call. And then the police stops us. And then they were like, what's going on? And they went through all of our shit. And then they knew we were running the newspaper. They knew we were printing in California, which was illegal. We had to print in Mexico. And they knew all this shit about us. And we were like, man, somebody like, you know, blew the whistle on us. And, uh, we, then we, they, they let us go, and then we came back. And on the way back, a different set of cops stop us, and they put us through the ringer again. We're like, holy shit, does this have anything to do with the Caliente guy? And uh, we didn't know. And then we got really nervous because we were like, I don't want to like get killed because of some yeah, stupid sure. thing. So we, uh, and you know, back then it was just chaos in Mexico. And the, so we were like, let's leave this house and get another house because like it's not worth it so we left at the end of the week we left that house and we found another house to go to and then when we went to that house again but this time they came and knocked on our door so they knew where we had moved to you know rosarita is not a big town but still i mean it's not that small so you know we got a little nervous and we were like holy shit like this is like very purposeful and then we had this p.o box and uh we we got a threat in the P.O. box and the the woman, the people who ran the P.O. box, they were like, we can't, we, we don't want to receive your mail anymore and stuff. You're getting too many threatening phone calls and stuff like that. And, you know, we didn't, it, it wasn't like we were doing anything crazy, but we we definitely hit a nerve there with some of the reporting that we were doing. And uh, But it was threatening because we were in the country we didn't know and the rules were not in the hands of the, you know, the the people who upheld the law. It was like in the hands of the people who, the other side. So we, we were like, you know, screw this. And I, we told Carrie this, Carrie, who was our, the printer in Long Beach. 
she was like, yeah, well, of course, you can't do stories like that. Uh, you know, people there don't have the same sort of patience and respect the First Amendment they do in the U.S. She, and there, she was like, why don't I do this? Why don't I buy the newspaper off of you guys and I'll run it? And in this way, you guys, uh, you know, if you guys want to leave, you can leave. And we were like, shit, this might be our out. So she bought the newspaper from us, you know, for what I, at the time I thought was like, you know, a lot of money. It was like less than $100,000. But, you know, we were like 20, you know, we were in our early 20s. Yeah. So we were like, okay, screw it. Let's give it to her. And God bless her. She kept it running. So it's still going. The paper today, it's still going. It's all over Baja, Mexico, right? All over Baja, which is that strip uh, hanging off. And it's still going. It's in every hotel. It's in every, like, touristy place you could imagine. She's still putting it out. Now it's called, it's legitimately called the Gringo Gazette. So it's, uh, but she kept it, yeah, she still kept it going. It's amazing. And, um, you know, so we left and we came to D.C. We were like, you know, in Mexico it was so hard. Let's go to Washington, D.C., that's our base. That's where we, both of us grew up uh, in Washington, yeah, yeah, yeah. D.C. We're like, let's go to D.C. and uh, start a paper there. There we know the language. It's going to be so much easier. Of hey, course. Amir? It, yeah, tell me. Amir, what, 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 we've already reached the end of our first segment. Why don't we take a commercial break? And the other side of the break, we'll sure. pick it up from, from Washington, D.C. So you're listening to the kind of you got it. podcast. The, the other side, Amir is going to tell us what happened once they got to D.C. So stay tuned. Don't buy a South Florida condo, discounted or distressed, before taking a Condo Vultures correction tour. CondoVultures.com offers weekly bus and walking tours that focus on educating buyers on the how-tos of identifying discounted condos, analyzing the opportunities, and purchasing units. Every tour attendee receives a list of all condo projects in a particular market, a market assessment handout, and unmatched expert analysis. For more information on the condo correction tours, Please visit condovultures.eventbrite.com or call 305-865-5859. Welcome back to the Condo Vultures Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Zalewski. Having a very interesting conversation with Amir Karangi. He is the founder and the publisher of The Real Deal. Now, he's a journalist. He's an entrepreneur. He's also an adjunct professor and a senior fellow. Amir, what's up with that? You're a senior fellow and a lecturer at NYU, New York University, and you're also an adjunct professor yeah. over at Columbia University. What, what, yes. what, what gives? Are you going academia or are you going entrepreneurial or are you kind of doing everything? <laughs> I honestly thought it would look really cool on my Wikipedia page. And so that's why I did it. I thought I would do it for two years, but it turned out to be so much fun. And the kids, it's, they're both mass on their both masters program at Columbia. It's at the architectural school. So it's really interesting kids. I mean, they, I love being around them and the ideas that they have. It's really fun class. You should come in on it one day. Now, now, how are you actually teaching, uh, given the fact that, you know, we're in the midst of a pandemic? Are you doing Zoom classes, or and, and how regularly do you do it? Uh, my, it's, I do it twice a week. Uh, my, it's, it's on Zoom now, so it's, uh, it's, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty seamless. It's actually a lot easier because I had to go all the way up to Columbia, which is, you know, in Harlem, and uh, that, that used to, take it, uh, that used to uh, be sort of draining. But uh, actually, I prefer the Zoom classes. It's not the same because I also did like walking on campus and it's a beautiful campus, Columbia. And uh, so I, I used to love that. But, um, but yeah, this is fine too, at least for a year. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, now you, you, when, when we took our commercial break, you were just, uh, you, you, you sold off uh, South of the Border, your publication, which still exists today. Now it's called Gringo Gazette, South of the Border. 
and then you took the cash, a yeah. uh, hundred grand or so, and you and your your partner. What, what was your partner's name? Uh, and then you guys went to DC. John Warner. He was uh, my partner. He was my good friend, my best friend from high school. He was okay. a journalist, but he was a uh, he he worked hard, man. So he he was great. Uh, he was a great partner to have at the time. But so yeah, yeah we came to DC. We came to DC. We thought it would be easier. It's a place we know. We, it's a place we speak the language. But wouldn't you know it, it was so much harder to do something in D.C. And D.C. was a very conservative sort of a market. Like it's not like New York where they had like all like they have the Post and, you know, the, the Daily News and other fun sort of publications. Yeah. Uh, D.C. doesn't have that. D.C. was the Washington Post and the other paper was even the Washington Times, which is uh, terrible, was uh, even more conservative than the Post. So they didn't have anything like the New York Post or anything. And we wanted to started as sort of a New York Post weekly for uh, for the D.C. area. We thought it would be really fun. And we call it the Free Press, the, the Washington, D.C. Free Press. That's what it was called. And uh, when we first launched it, it was uh, interesting because, you know, this time we had a little bit more capital. We, you know, we, we, we could do more because we were the last time we literally had very little money. So this time we had a little bit more capital and we like our hands were a little bit more free to do stuff. And, uh, it was more difficult. It was more difficult to get advertisers to come in. It was more difficult to uh, get news that was new and different to people, but we still managed, you know, we went and hired a bunch of writers, you know, paying them five cents a word and uh, people who just wanted to basically write, but our name, our name, because it was called the free press, people felt that it was uh, like a socialist uh, paper, right? So we would get these letters. They were like, Oh, we're so happy that, uh, you guys are uh, out here, like you know, p- promoting socialism and stuff. I was like, "What? No, this, uh, Did you read a single article in there? It has nothing to do with any of that." And we took the same model from the Gringo Gazette, uh, you know, uh, and we or south of the border, and we did, you know, we knew that we we're going to have a crime page, and we would have like these very, very like yellow crime pages like absolutely terrible <laughs> we take the worst crimes and write about them because you know the washington post was not going to write about local crimes and we're like oh man you know kills wife with meat cleaver and like really <laughs> yellow uh, sort of headlines that actually picked up steam we're like shoot we should do two pages of crime and then again people would be like love the crime stories i was like shit we should do three pages of crime and then uh, finally the um, there was another uh, paper there called the city paper and after about a um, about after about a year of doing that they came and they were like well we really really like what you guys are doing we, we want to uh, you know buy you guys out okay. we were like okay well that yeah this was uh, this was very fast but you know then they bought it again for what we thought was a lot of money <laughs> and then uh, they killed it they just took the paper and killed it because they didn't want to have any sort of competition in uh, uh, over there. So it was very sad to see something that you put together and you spent so much time on it. And they literally took it and just folded it. They took our distribution. And we had like very guerrilla sort of distribution. I, I would personally go to clubs and I would yes. put like 25 newspapers in my jacket and I would go to clubs and leave it everywhere. So, you know, we had like, <laughs> because we, we were distributing 30,000 copies in Washington, D.C. And we were like, just trying to get it to everyone who we thought should see it. So, and we wanted to build a brand. So all we saw distribution was key. So that was very important to us. So we made a really good and fast name for us, mostly because of our distribution and the kind of news that we did. 
But uh, you know, it, it wasn't it, it wasn't for everybody. That that was for sure. And then after that, I was like, you know what? I should go back to school for publishing. So I came back to uh, Boston and I went to school at Emerson. And I was like, let me let me learn about publishing. They had a publishing program. And it turns out, like you know, the publishing program was nonsense because they were still talking about galley proofs. They were not talking about PageMaker and the software programs that were like taking over the industry. So it was like one of those colleges that, while it was good at a lot of things, you know, it was uh, it was a liberal arts school. They were just they were very behind on the publishing side. So I went for about a, a year, and I was like, screw, it, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to finish this. So I got it. And I told the dean to, uh, and the dean was like, I'm totally with you. We should not be offering it unless it's like the latest stuff. And then we decided to give me a different degree than uh, what I had gone there for. And then after that, uh, I was like, well, let me go to the big publishing houses in New York and uh, learn from them. So I was like, what are the big publishing houses? So I got a job with Random House. You know, I, I didn't realize back then that like, look, news publishing and book publishing are two different things. I just wanted to learn about publishing. So I was like, let me get a job with a big publisher. So I, I got a job with Random House. I came to New York and uh, I was like, I was about to start my job that like, uh, it was like a Tuesday. I was about to start my job that following Monday. And uh, my friend says, Amir, you got to get a job in the, with the internet companies. That's where the future is. Uh, you know, it, you should work for an internet company. And I was like, well, which one? They were like, every, all of them are hiring. If you can, if you know how email works, they'll hire you. So I was like, okay. So I get a job at this before Wednesday. I apply for a job. The guy tells me to come in right away. And he takes me to this cool office space that they had. Somebody invested like millions of dollars with them. Yeah. And uh, the guy who actually started the company was Carl Page, who was Larry Page's uh, brother, who's Larry Page's older brother. And he, uh, so he was starting this company called eGroups. And I was like, yeah, this is awesome. And uh, back then Google wasn't, you know, it was still Google, but it wasn't, people were more impressed with Yahoo back then than Google. Yeah. So Google wasn't what it is today. And so there is, um, there is, uh, so I, 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 I was going to work at a random house making $36,000 a year. And then this guy was like, I'll give you $46,000 a year. I was like, that's Amazing. I, I, it's a, a lot of money. You know, I was like in New York, I was like, I'm so rich. You know, I'm making $46,000 a year. This is amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and then I worked for that company for exactly two months before. And it was like, they had no idea. Nobody was a business person. Other than the salespeople, there was nobody who was a real business person. And they just had a lot of money. People were throwing money at them. And within two months, uh, Yahoo comes and buys the company for uh, $540 million. So Yahoo comes and buys the company for $540 million, And then all of a sudden, we're under new management. So like, And Yahoo was more of a corporation and a serious business. So they come in and they, uh, you know, they, they straighten things out. They're like, we expect this, we expect that. And I was like, I hate this. Like, I don't want to work here. And I was like, I came up with this idea for Yahoo because that uh, offices like all over the world at that point. And I came up with this idea to inform all the employees. I think at that point they had like 30,000 employees or something to inform all the employees. I wanted to start a Yahoo news, uh, like a Yahoo uh, newsletter for the employees. And you know, that was my background. I really wanted to get into it. And they were like, yeah. then the management takes me aside. They were like, how much time did you spend coming up with this? I was like, Oh, it took me about two, three days. They were like, 
you know, we pay you to do your job and we don't want you to like focus on anything else. I was like, this is fucking not going to work out. <laughs> I was like, yeah, 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 I'm like yeah, an entrepreneur yeah. by nature. Like telling me to like just focus on my job is not going to be good with me. So then, you know, I, I decided to uh, leave, but I had to wait exactly a year to leave so I could take, you know, have some of the stocks be vested so I could have some money. And then as nice. I'm going through this process... Well, I mean, there was, it wasn't that much, but it still would pay for some travel. And then, uh, so I, uh, as I'm going through this process, wouldn't you know it, September 11th happens. And uh, it's just like the worst market. I, it was just horrible. And uh, if I'm, my name is Amir, you know, I'm from the Middle East. Nobody is like interested in hiring uh, me at that point. And the job market was just absolute horrendous. And I had bought a place in Prospect Heights in Brooklyn uh, back then for $105,000. I hated the idea of paying rent. I was like, I'd rather live in Brooklyn. Back then, Brooklyn wasn't gentrified. So back then, I was like a pioneer. So I was like, let me go there instead of paying rent. As long as I'm near the train, I could hop on the train and be anywhere in Manhattan 30 minutes. I'm good. And so I bought a place for like 105K. I lose my job. All this stuff happens. I have to go, Peter, I have to go and... You know, this is the one thing that's really liberating about being a waiter is that no matter what happens in the world, yeah. you can always be a waiter and make ends meet. And I was a waiter all through high school and college. So okay. I was like, when I lost my job, I went back to being a waiter. And I didn't have any problems with it. Like I would have clients from like the, my Yahoo days come yeah. and they would sit at my table. They were like, Amir. I was like, yeah, yeah I hope you tip me well. And they were <laughs> like, yeah. And I, I, honestly, I, I really understood myself because like, I, I think people were like, but were you humiliated or did you feel, no. I was like, to be honest, I didn't, I was, I didn't feel humiliated at all. I thought it was kind of cool. And then, uh, so they, um, so, right. So I was like, I don't mind, uh, you know, uh, working at a restaurant and yeah, I had to make ends meet, but I was like, this, you know, why do it in New York? New York is so expensive. There's so much pressure. And I was like, I'm going to sell my apartment and go to like somewhere I've never been. I'm going to pick a new city and just go start there. And uh, I was always a big fan of Forrest Gump, and I wanted to see Savannah. And I've never seen Savannah before, and I still haven't. So I went to sell my con- uh, condo, and prices had gone up like tremendously. Like the apartment that I had bought for 105000 ended up selling for like 360000 well And it was a matter of two days. Yeah. So I was like, this is pretty great. I'm never going to work for anybody else. And I was, and I would go buy. Uh, so I decided to get into real estate. I was like, because I, I didn't. I honestly, the only reason why I bought my condo wasn't to flip it. Was to I didn't want to pay rent. So yes. I was like, let me go and focus on buying uh, stuff in Brooklyn and selling it to Manhattan people. And I, my flips were like averaging like eighty percent, fifty to eighty percent on average on these flips. And like I wouldn't hold anything for a year. Like everything would sell within like six months, four months. It was like. Anything you touched was gold in Brooklyn at that point. So yeah. I was, uh, I did like, I think 14 or 16 apartments or, and townhouses in like two years or something. Well done. But then I really, I really missed, uh, I really missed journalism. So like from 2001 to 2003, I'm flipping as fast as I can. I'm buying local from Brooklyn brokers and marketing it to uh, Manhattan buyers. And everybody was like, yeah, this is great. I could have a two bedroom within 20 minutes of the city. And Brooklyn started becoming a real thing. I mean, I wasn't the only person doing it, obviously, but I was definitely there very early on. And then we, I was like, I really miss like all, all the people I'm talking to all day are fucking contractors 
And, you know, just people are not stimulating, uh, you know, the, my brain much. So I was like, I really missed uh, journalism. So I came up with this concept uh, for the real deal. I thought real because it's real estate and deal because real estate's about deals. Yep. And I started doing my own research. And uh, I started doing my own research and I started going to other sort of niche publications and sort of uh, trade publications to hear their pitches. And I would meet these sales guys. And I was like, shit, I can do a 10 times better job than these guys. I mean, I sold in Mexico, man. Like these, <laughs> like, these guys could not hack it there. So I felt more confident. I was like, I'm going to put this together and uh, just, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it out. I'm gonna, I, and then I, again, I went back to PageMaker. I started, I put a model together. I still have the front cover model that I put together. And I made a list of people that I thought that, you know, I could get news from. So I made a list, every, every day I would make a list of at least 100 people. And the following day, I would go down that list and call everybody and tell them I'm starting this new magazine. It's focused on real estate news, residential, commercial, the whole gamut. And I, if you have any news, please send it to me or email it to me or call me. And I would go down that list every day until I could fill out, you know, until news started coming in. I would keep doing it and doing it. And, uh, and uh, in the beginning, people were like, you're going to have a whole magazine dedicated to real estate? Is there even that much real estate news? And I was like, there is, but people just don't write about it. Back then, the New York Times, who, that the, the real estate section was the highest grossing section of the newspaper, believe it or not. They didn't have a de dedicated real estate editor. They didn't even have a oh. dedicated real estate reporter. So they were writing stories about like, oh, check out this amazing townhouse on the Upper East Side. And you know, real estate was, was a boom at that point in the city. And they were talking about nonsense. And I knew what the market wanted to see. And I dealt with brokers enough to know that they're a very sophisticated crowd. You know, these are people who know, uh, like they're, they're business people. When I was a kid, when I used to think of a real estate broker, I always thought about my mom's friends who would do it after school or during the school hours. And they would go pick up the kids and they would do real estate brokerage in between uh, their chores. But in New York, I saw a very professional group of people who were like, you know, People who were former lawyers, people who were former doctors who thought they could make more money in real estate. And I was like, these people need actual content to read and uh, you know, have something that's a tool for them, not like nonsense. So I thought there was definitely use and demand for it. And then I went to Cranes. I came up with the pitch. I was like, I need money to do this. I can't do this on my own. So I went to Cranes and I went to uh, places like, um, I forget, uh, like some of the other big, big trade publishers. And I was like, I want to do this thing. I want to call it the real deal. I remember one guy was like, that's such a stupid name. Like, you should really think it. He was like, we're not going to invest in this because we don't think there is a future in real estate news. But you should really, <laughs> if you want people to take you seriously, you should change the name. <laughs> nice, nice, so, nice. So I was like, no, I really like the name. I think it's catchy. It, people will remember it and stuff. And he was like, well, anyways, they were not interested. And then I went to the people at Cranes and I was like, Guys, Cranes in New York, 70% of your advertising is from real estate people. And you yep. only do four real estate articles a month. On, and meanwhile, 70% of your audience's real, uh, advertisers are real estate people. They were like, we just don't think there's enough content for real estate. And you know, it's just not interesting. Those articles, are not, they don't do really well or whatever. 
And I, I just did not, you know, I, I was, I was so clear with like what a demand there was for it because I was actually in it and I, I would talk to people about it and I just never understood why they didn't see it that way. And I was like, I got to come up with the money to be able to do this. And thank God nobody invested in me because, you know, still I own it outright, which is a great place to be after 18 years in media, you know. And no, so, no, no, let me stop you, Amir. Uh, let me stop you. Yeah. So, so when you came forward to do this, and again, I think America Online, AOL, I think it was created in like 1996. Remember, you had the, the whole uh, tech, yeah. uh, stock market run up up until 2001, yeah. 2000, things like that. Yeah. So, so when you when you started the real deal, was the platform um, online or was it was it hard copy paper or was it a combination it was, of the two? What, what were you thinking? The first four months were just magazine uh, printed okay. uh, copies. And then I had a friend of mine uh, – who I, um, a friend of mine from Yahoo, who was a developer at Yahoo, we became very friendly. And he was uh, getting his, he, after uh, Yahoo bought our company, uh, he went to get his master's at NYU in uh, computer engineering. He was already a developer. And he was like, Amir, I love this product. Let me put it online for you. I was like, uh, how? He was like, I'll just take your content and put it online. And I'm still right. indebted to that guy because because of that guy, we started building an audience very early on that people could find us there, right? So even Cranes and these bigger publishers, they didn't have dedicated uh, websites back then. And this mm-hmm. guy put this website together and he would just take my content and just put it on the site. And we were like, whatever, it doesn't cost us anything. So it was great. And every month I would update it and stuff. And thank God for him because that changed, you know, everything. So it was, uh, uh, it, it, it turned out to be a real blessing for us. And, and, uh, and you know, so when, I can, Amir, let, let, let me give the crowd, and I'm, I'm, I'm taking from the About Us uh, section of The Real Deal website, which, by the way, is, is therealdeal.com. You guys got 4 million-plus monthly site visits, 2.4 million-plus yeah. monthly sites that are unique, 10 million-plus monthly site page views, and 2.5 million annual print readers. I would say uh, yeah. you guys are definitely going in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. And, you know, it's real estate. It's not the most exciting stuff. So we try to sass it up a little bit and make it exciting. We use fashion photographers and things like that. But at the end of the day, we're talking about real estate. So it's amazing to me that, like, all of a sudden we write about some deal maker in Brooklyn and you have, you know, in that one article, 60,000, 80,000 people go to read it. I'm blown away by that. But uh, so, you know, when – we we started going. I was like, I, nobody would invest with me, and I had to come up with something uh, to do for this. And so I, I, di- I went to do a flip, and the building board realized that I'm a flipper, and they were like, we don't want to flip it to you. And the guy who was trying to sell the unit was like, look, after the meeting, after the board meeting, he was like, look, you think you can – I've had this building on the market for eight months. You're the only person who's shown any interest uh, do you think you could sell this unit for more than I have it listed? I was like, yeah, definitely. And he was like, well, I'll give you the keys. And whatever you sell it for more than what I have it listed for, you can take. And the nice. guy had it listed for, for 130000 or something, and it was there for like six months. So I picked it up. I, I didn't pick it up because he just gave me the keys, and we had an agreement. And yep. uh, I, within three months, I sold it for 210000 So I, I made 80000 That was the thing. So I was like, look, I wasn't supposed to make this money. Why don't I take this 80000 and put it towards four issues of the real deal? It, at the end of the day, I wasn't supposed to have the 80000 anyways. And if it works, great. If not, I have like four copies to show for it. Maybe it'll help me get a job uh, somewhere. So 
I, you know, I put it together. The very first issue I put together entirely myself. So I wrote all the articles and I laid it out. I took all the photos and uh, put it together and I almost died. You know, like I, there was so much work that I was like, there's no way I can continue to do it this way. And I wanted people to think we were bigger than we were. So for yeah. all the bylines, I used different names, like, and like familiar names. Like I would be like Charles Brinkley and, uh, you know, <laughs> David Jennings and uh, like Bill Ratter. So like, the, so I would like have these different names. So people would think it's like a real big newspaper. Meanwhile, I was in my apartment in Brooklyn, like, you know, churning this out on my uh, laptop. And then, uh, and then I was like, I can't do this alone. And I went to uh, Columbia University School of Journalism, and I went on campus, and I started asking people. I was uh, handing them like a flyer. I was like, "Come write for the real deal and stuff. Get get published. Get published." And then one of the deans sees me, and he's like, "What are you trying to do?" I was like, "I'm looking for cheap writers." So he was like, "There's a better way to go about this." He was like, "Why don't you go meet with the dean of the journalism school, and maybe he can okay. help you?" So he puts me in touch with the guy, and the guy says, "Like, you know, I don't like the idea of like our." Uh, uh, our people, uh, the students writing, but how about I could put you in touch with the alums that we really like and we're in touch with, and you know I'm sure they'll be happy to do freelance work for you. And they put me in touch with Stuart Elliott, and uh, Stuart was, who's my partner now, and Stuart was at the New York Times then. And uh, they put me in touch with Stuart, and I he did a story for me, and I was like, this is great, this is the only story I didn't have to edit. And I was like, this is great. I was like, why don't you come and be the editor of The Real Deal? He was like, well, I'm at The New York Times right now. I was like, well, you could be at The New York Times and be some reporter or come to Brooklyn, work out of my house and be the editor of The Real Deal. He was like, okay, let's do it. He was like, let's do it. Oh. And I never, I never forget this, but about a few years ago, five, seven years ago, uh, I remember seeing the salary of uh, the editor of the New York Times, and I told Stuart, I was like, "Isn't it crazy that you make more that, is it, that you made the right decision? You know, aren't you happy that you came with the real deal?" And so th that was, uh, you know, that was in 2003. And then I remember after the very first issue that I put out, I never had anything in there for subscriptions. I, like I, I forgot to put that in there. Like if you wanted to subscribe, do this or do that. And I remember um, I got a hundred. 24 people reaching out for a subscription. And I was like, holy shit, I'm onto something. Because in the yeah. print world, for every letter that you receive, that means 100 people are wanting to send that letter, right? So for me, that was like, oh man, that's a lot of people who are interested in this sort of content. And I knew I was onto something when I got those people saying like, I want a subscription. And then it just, uh, you know, since then, I've, for the first year, we did it out of my house in Brooklyn while it was being renovated and all that. And uh, we, would room for, we would move from room to room, the office of The Real Deal, because one day the kitchen was being renovated, the next day was the master <laughs> bedroom. And then, you know, we worked around the clock then, and it was so motivating because, we, like, the readers were, like, very vocal. They would, like, comment. They would send letters. They would send emails. People would call us. And it just felt good. It felt like we were on to something good. And it really motivated us. Nothing motivates you more than knowing that your readers or your clients are engaged and they're interested and they find it useful and they find you indispensable. Like that, that gives, gave us real purpose and real motivation uh, then. And it does today as well. And, uh, you know, that was uh, about 18 years ago. So, and here we are today. And, and Amir, why don't we take our next commercial break and then on the other side, We'll, we'll talk a little bit about um, uh, how you came to Miami, 
what you're up to right now and what you see going forward. Because obviously you're, you're somebody who's ahead of the curve, and I think the audience is going to love it. So uh, we'll be right back. We'll catch sure. you on the other side of the break. Challenging times for real estate calls for experts that help you to navigate the new normal in the process of buying or selling property in South Florida. At CBR Realty, we listen carefully and advise based on stats, local knowledge, and experience. For more information, call us at 305-865-5859 or visit our website, cbrrealty.com. Welcome back to the Condo Vultures Podcast. I'm Peter Zaluski. I'm having a conversation with Amir Karangi. Uh, he's the founder and publisher of The Real Deal. I was going to say chairman, but uh, he said the publication is too small to be called a chairman. I'm not necessarily, <laughs> necessarily sure I, I agree with Amir on that one. But um, uh, Amir, you, you're talking about how the publication evolved. I remember in, I think it was 2008 or so. And remember, you started The Real mm-hmm. Deal in 2003. I think it was 2008, uh, right when the market was starting to go sideways down here in South Florida, that I was contacted by somebody with The Real Deal. I had been a journalist. I went ahead, I, I set up a company called Condo Vultures. I was doing that. We were putting out data. And somebody from The Real Deal reached out to me. And that was my first recollection of The Real Deal in Miami, about 2007, 2008. Can, can you sort of pick up the That's story right. for people who have always seen The Real Deal, but they don't really know the background of the history as to how it got to Miami? Yeah, so we were, uh, we were doing stuff out of New York, and everybody was telling us, like, you can't just, like, Miami needs a real deal or South Florida needs a real deal. You guys have to bring that down there. And back then, Miami seemed like it exo- could have been another world for me. You know, like I, yeah. I was just so New York focused. I was like, I can't imagine going down to Miami and starting the real deal all over from scratch again. And then my coworkers, especially on the sales side, they were like, no, there's, there's a huge readership there. ton of the same investors that invest in New York or are based out of New York are also investing in Miami. And uh, so I went down there one time. And I really, I, I met with a bunch of people. I wanted to get a sense of the market and like what the interest would be for it. And I was really impressed. And I looked at the, uh, the data for the number of uh, real estate licenses that were issued. And at that point, uh, you know, because after the crash, you know, when there's a crash, uh, the number of real, real estate licenses goes up. So whenever, whenever, whenever unemployment <laughs> uh, goes high, real estate imp- uh, uh, licenses goes high. So there was a lot of that in uh, South Florida as well. And I thought, okay, fine. Like just based on, there was a lot of Caribbean uh, developments that were happening. And yep. we thought, uh, so they were big advertisers for us. I was like, even if I don't get any advertisers from Florida because they're going through their downturn, uh, which New York followed soon after, there, New York was a year late to it. I was like, the Caribbean developments could uh, allow me to do the, um, to do the Miami regardless, at least for a year or two years so that, un- until the market comes back. But then, so we go down there, and as we go down there, like it, it picks up pretty good. But we didn't fully, uh, you know, it's it's not what it is today. And then when we launched the Miami uh, thing, we were like, holy shit, this is, it's taking a lot of effort, and there's not enough money. And then we had to deal with a recession in New York. Yeah. So not only are we getting killed in New York, we're getting killed in Miami, and I, I just add, added this other liability that uh, was like really becoming a burdensome and I really wanted to shut down Miami and it had, it had been only a year and the story was like no let's just let's just put it online and just keep it and we'll just post one story a day and then we did that and so we did that for a few years where we were just like posting one story a day just to keep Miami and just tell people hey we're also in South Florida but not really and then yes. I remember talking to um, it was like 2012 or 2013 
Uh, at that point, the market was starting to come back. Actually, it was 2012. I was, the market was oh. starting to come back. And okay. uh, they, um, I, I remember talking to uh, Don Peebles. I was talking to Don Peebles, and he was like, Amir, you need to take South Florida seriously. He was like, you're not taking it seriously. He was like, you need to put out the same content that you do for New York in South Florida because, like, you're still missing it. And, you know, I was like, let me try it. Let me see it. The market was coming back. I was feeling good. We had now, the cash was now, coming now, back. Amir, uh, Amir can, can I interrupt? I just I want to bring the listener up. I want to give him up to bring him up to speed. So Don Peebles sure. yeah, yeah. is a developer out of Washington, D.C. He was on vacation in the 90s, and he saw an application that or, or noticed that the city of Miami Beach was going to go ahead and build a convention center hotel. The, the Tisch family ended up building a Lowe's. And then there was there was another hotel site, the Royal Palms, that ultimately was going to be uh, developed by an African American, and it was sort of a gesture by the city of Miami Beach because there was uh, a protest going on because Nelson Mandela, after he got out of Robben Island in South Africa, was touring the world. He was basically slighted. So as, as to try to make amends, um, uh, an African American was going to be developing uh, a part of this convention center hotel. Don ended up getting the contract, and ever since then, Don's been developing down here in South Florida. So I'm sorry. I just wanted to add that. Well, if you don't know Don's story, he's got a fascinating story. You know, he used to work for Mayor Marion Barry. And, uh, the, and that was such a shit show. That was the crack, the crackhead mayor. <laughs> Remember, he got caught with smoking yeah. crack with a prostitute. So Don, as a young That's right. yep. out of yep. Washington, D.C., he used to work for this guy when he was like only 18, 19 years old. And uh, Marion Barry uh, loved him. You know, he was like, this guy's great. He's bright. He's ambitious. He really liked him. And Don became the youngest, uh, like, city, uh, what is it called, uh, city zoning uh, manager or something like that. It was like 21, 22 years old or something. And uh, this Acme Corporation comes to D.C. They're like, guy, we've been trying to get this plan approved for D.C. It's good for D.C. It's a shopping center. It's in an area that really needs it. We've been trying to get somebody's attention. Nobody calls us back. It was like no city. We've never dealt with a city like this where they're not interested in like business coming to the city. And Don's like, I'm going to be, I'll put the deal together for you guys. I think this is a great deal. They made Don a partner in that development. So at a very young age, Don ends up making a fortune. Like he ends up making like $6 million or something from that deal. He's got a fascinating story. But anyways, so Don became a specialist in... Uh, working with cities. So if you look at his contracts, if you look at his developments, it's all city contracts. So the one that he's doing in New York, he got that from the city. He was also going to get another project from the city. The one that he got in Philadelphia, he got that from the city. Miami, of course, he got from the city. So he's always working the city angle, and it, it works out well for him. But anyway, so Don tells me, Amir, you have to take Miami more seriously. There's too much going on, and you, you have to take it more seriously. And I agreed with him. And we started to dedicate more reporters. And we're like, look, if we put out more content and the traffic goes up for the site, let's just start supporting it. And that's exactly what happened. And we started adding more and more reporters and more resources there. And believe it or not, even today, I have 22, I think, or 24 journalists in New York. I only have four journalists in, uh, in Miami. And every week, the, new, the articles from Miami they do more traffic than the articles from New York do. Can you believe that? So even though we have like so many resources here and they come no place, none of the other cities get the diverse audience that the Miami, uh, the South Florida site gets. You get people mm -hmm. from 
literally every state of the country looking at what's going on in South Florida. They're, everybody's so interested. I mean, it's whether they're investors or they just love it. Whatever it is, they just love seeing uh, stuff in Miami. So it does really well for us. And I'm so happy we didn't, uh, you know, we didn't erase that city when the market was down. Now, now, now Amir, let me ask you, what, what year was it that you guys first started publishing a magazine in Miami? When, when was the first time you actually put something on the 2008 program? or 2007 2000. or 2008. Yeah, I think so. Okay. It was like right – it was at the worst time to do it, but, yep. you know, yep. we felt pretty good about it. Now, now, now Don, Don encourages you to go ahead, stick with it, start to blow it out. You start to do that in 2012, and at that time, uh, South Florida is going through another boom, another renaissance, because basically a lot of the oversupply had been absorbed, and now a whole new construction is beginning, which means developers, they need to generate attention and sales, so they're going out and they're burning cash uh, advertising. Would, would that be a correct Which uh, was great summer? for us. Yep. Yeah, which was great for us, and we started doing events down in Florida, and the events got bigger and bigger, and believe it or not, our event in Miami uh, is larger than our event in New York. In New York, we get about 3,500 people uh, that come to yep. our uh, national development forum or yep. to the New York development forum. And for our Miami development forum, we get over 5,000 people hands down every time. Last time, we had Ben Carson, who's the secretary of HUD, and yep. uh, we had over 5,500 people at that, uh, at that event. And it's amazing. I love what a community, the real estate community in uh, Miami is. Everybody knows each other. Everybody's connected with each other. One thing with Miami that was a little strange for us was that they were sort of new to journalism. Like, okay. they were like, I don't understand. You're, you're writing about our industry. Why would you write anything negative? And I was like, well, because it's important. Like, news is out there to inform the market so people don't make bad decisions. People don't do work with bad people. This and that, you know. And they, they just couldn't comprehend why a, a, you know, a publication that's focused on real estate would write bad things about real estate. They were like, they were like just write about this, the sales that happened, the good stuff that happens. So, well, that's not really news, <laughs> and I don't think that's going to really serve anybody. I think it's important for people to know if this guy is a scumbag. I think it's important for people to know this guy's been foreclosed on 18 times. Like, those are important pieces of information that's like our duty to put out there because it lets people not make the same mistake twice. You know, I really, uh, it, the 2008 crash, a big part of the problem there was uh, the media pretty much uh, blowing it. They had a lot of opportunities to look at those numbers, to see what was happening, and they just pretty much took the word of what people from the finance world were telling them and running with it. And that's why we ended up where we were. Everybody was shocked. Everybody but the finance people. <laughs> like The people who were selling the CDOs and the CMBSs, they weren't shocked. But everybody else was absolutely you know, taken uh, you know, blindsided. Now, now, anybody who looks at the real deal, what they're going to notice is uh, besides doing the you know, transaction story, the deal of the day type of situation, you guys are also starting to dig into public records, and you're tapping into, at least down in Miami, you're tapping into a lot of the Sunshine Law stuff where we're seeing increasingly a lot of lawsuit stories because everyone knows when the, biz, when the market goes sideways, people start suing each other and start to get very interesting. Right. Now, can, can you talk about the push-pull in a time like this? So you were running the, the crust when the boom was going on. Now we're going into a situation where there's a lot of uncertainty. You have people suing each other over commissions and other things. Is, is this, a, this is a good time for journalism, but is it a good time for advertising and the push-pull? And how do you balance and walk a tightrope, just generally speaking? Uh, in, so we, in Miami it's very easy for it's, it's easy for us. We have the same policies for all of our cities, and we just okay. tell our reporters. I mean, that's why we have, you know, we have 13 
former real estate reporters uh, that are at the, running the Wall Street Journal's real estate section. The real estate editor from the Associated Press is a real deal person. The real estate editor from Reuters is a real deal person. We like really founded the whole idea of real estate journalism. The New York Times didn't have that. The two real estate reporters that the New York Post has are, you know, our guys, the observers. So like we really trained these guys and they went to other places. But, you know, for us, we always told our reporters, if the facts are straight and you think yep. it's a service to the industry, yep. you go with it. I don't give a shit who the guy is. I don't care how many uh, butt mitzvahs I've been at his house. I don't <laughs> care about anything. If if you guys have the facts straight, run with it, I'll, co- I'll cover you. And that's always been our attitude. And sometimes it's a hard pill to swallow because, you know, we had this episode where Kevin Maloney, who's a very big developer, he's one of the biggest, he doesn't get credit for it, but he's, all, he's really all over the country. People talk about related and places like that, but Kevin Maloney from PMG is literally all over the country and he develops in a lot of different markets. And we, he had, we did this, one of our reporters who's at the Journal now, she did this report, uh, she did this interview with him. And uh, it, it, him and Michael Stern were partners uh, for a lot of stuff in New York and uh, in other places. And so the reporter asks uh, Kevin, like, hey, you know, would you do another deal with Michael? And he was like, if it was up to me, I would never, I would have never had a, done a deal with Michael in the first place. And they were going for a big $300 million loan for the Steinway Tower. And then after the interview, his publicist calls us and says, hey, you know that part, of what he says about Michael? Please don't, um, don't include that. We were like, are you fucking kidding me? That's the best part of the interview. And they were like, why is that important? Well, it's important because if somebody's about to lend these guys $300 million, they should know that they don't, they don't like each other, right? Or they're, or they're at odds with each other, right? That's the important piece of news, wouldn't you say so? They're like, no, because if you write that, then they probably won't get the loan and it'll, it'll be uh, put the je- uh, project in jeopardy. I was like, yeah, but then also, like, don't you think the lender and people who invested with that lender deserve to know that they're about to give $300 million to a partnership that doesn't get along? Like, you know, if, if the lender wants to do it, that's up to them at that point, but it's our duty to include it. I had to explain these step by step to them. And then uh, Kevin calls me and he's like, look, if you write that story, we're going to uh, pull all of our advertising. I was like, Kevin, I'm sorry. But that's the story, and uh, you know, I'm sorry you see it that way, but we have to run it. It's it's more important for us to run it. And it was a hard pill to swallow because you know he he, he spent like about three hundred thousand dollars a year with us, and he pulled all that advertising, and uh, you know he never looked back. But uh, you know we did the story, and I always tell my reporters, you know, we lose advertisers all the time because we write the stories. But the good thing is that our readers know that too. Our readers know they're like, oh my God, I can't believe they just did a story about this guy. They expect it. You know, it's not like, oh, they're going to take it easy on this guy because they're advertisers or anything. We, the two have nothing to do with each other. And I'm always going to take the side with our readers than with our advertisers because the advertisers want our readers too. And if our readers start to question us, then the advertising is not going to work either. Yeah. And for anybody who doesn't know the journalism industry, and I, I was a I was a staff writer full-time uh, uh, 13 years, and then I wrote columns, including for The Real Deal and other publications. You to, you, there's two types of publishers. There's an advertising publisher, which puts the advertising above everybody else, and then there's an editorial publisher, which puts the editorial about everything else. And I think it's very clear, Amir, that you are an editorial publisher, so kudos to you. There's not enough of them out there anymore. Uh, after the Great Recession, a lot of journalism basically got gutted, which is probably good for you. Yeah, I agree. All kind of new talent. 
you could tap into. And a lot of the publications people used to look to, they're basically, you know, they're, they're, they're not there anymore. They're, they're, there's no guard dog out there. But fortunately, the real right. deal is sort of stepped into that place. And I think a lot of people sort of, um, you know, kind of respect you for that. So, so um, uh, tell, tell me real quickly about some of the other markets you're in and then uh, what you guys are doing sort of going forward in terms of, um, uh, you know, everything the real deal is all about, what you're trying to accomplish. Because you're 18 years into this uh, very soon. We're going to be pushing that 20-year celebration. Right, that's right. I love those celebration parties. Uh, but you know, we for us we had to we have to shift with the markets. Right, like media is not what it was twenty years ago. It, it's not what it was five years ago. You know, five years ago, I mean, people. I mean, I'm sure most of your listeners are not media people, but the whole revenue channel has changed. Not because people don't advertise in print, but because all of a sudden media became about eyeballs. Like how could I get the highest number of eyeballs? Because if I get eyeballs, then I could sell that to Google and Google will write me a check. I don't even have to deal with advertisers. Google will do all the work for me. So then you saw these crazy valuations for these media companies like Pop Sugar and stuff like this, where like all of a sudden they were worth like $50 million, like a two-year-old sort of a you know, news site about celebrities or something. And what they would do is they would go to these big agencies and they would be like, okay, Coca-Cola, uh, give me $500,000 and I'm going to give you, I'm, I'm going to guarantee this many readers for you, for, for your advertising. And that, they would take Coca-Cola's money and then they would pay $400,000 to Google and guarantee the uh, readership that uh, Google would get them. And that was pretty much the media business for, you know, from 2012 to, uh, to 2017. In 2017, that shifted. Google and Facebook were like, the prices for conversion started to go up. So if you got $500,000 from Coca-Cola, you end up having to spend all of the $500,000 with Google or Facebook to get those returns. We never went down that road. We, were, we just always kept it organic. And, uh-huh. you know, it was also because we weren't, uh, it, it, it was not worth the resources and the effort. We still did programmatic ads, but not to the scale that some of these businesses absolutely relied and depended on it. So what happened was that that whole funnel start, started to change and uh, people got comfortable with paying for content that they really needed. So in 2018, we put up a paywall for the real deal and started to do really well. And for a long time, I fought it with my editors because they were like, we should do it, we should do it. And I was like, I don't want to lose traffic. I don't want to lose eyeballs. And they were like, I, it, we won't. And we did it and we didn't lose eyeballs. Our traffic continues to go up and we, uh, the paywall literally saved the magazine, or the, the entire business because of COVID. If I didn't have the paywall system and I had to rely on advertising, my advertising dropped by like you know, 40%, 50% in the first three, four months of COVID. So that, having that paywall revenue really uh, helped us. And for the last year and a half, we've been working on TRD Pro, which is uh, for, it's a paywall, but it's for uh, professionals in the business where we partnered up with eight uh, data providers, major data providers, to give a full glimpse of every market and nationally. So not only can you see stuff for Florida and Miami, but you can see it for Kansas and you know other obscure places around the country to give you a nice full glimpse. And that's for professionals in the business. And with that, we're including continuing education. We're now licensed in Florida to do continuing education and New York, and hopefully we'll be licensed in all 50 states soon. Wow, so wow, people wow. can come there, get data, 
get their continuing education do if they want if they want to be a broker to get their real estate license and be a broker as well so to make it all seamless under one subscription and you know if you take all the elements that we have in there it's like thousands of dollars worth of subscriptions that you would have to pay for data where you get it with us for the first year for the first year we're launching it with a $600 price tag so you get all of that continuing education the whole lot uh, the data the news everything for $600 and then after that we're going to adjust the price uh, accordingly but that's where media is going like if you're not indispensable if you're offering the same news that everybody else is offering yep. there is not going to be much space for you now, now, how much so, I, I, how, how much different would you say your your model is from say somebody like uh, Michael Bloomberg? So that, that if once we launched TRD Pro, it would be very much like that, you know. Except you know, Bloomberg started out with the data first, and then went into news. We started out yeah. with news, now going to data because after 18 years. We really, we, we really start to understand the data. We understand what's out there, what's available, and how people use it. So we're like, hey, we should get into this ourselves because data is a lot more valuable than news, believe it or not. But if you combine the two of them, then they, they become absolutely invaluable. So it was, uh, it, for us, it totally made sense. Our problem was that you know, we never had a Peter Zulisky who could like, understand data and find out like, the value of it and stuff like that. You know, finally, we were ready to, when we started to move in that direction, we, you know, we hired a data engineer and a product manager and people like that to help us, like, put the list together and, you know, put together the TRD Pro, sort of the dashboard. Now, now, somebody, is, is TRD Pro, is that currently available? And if not, uh, when will it become available? Okay, somebody's listening and they say, holy shit, that makes all the sense in the world. How do I find out more? Right. So that's going to come out in the first quarter of 2021. So uh, we, I had to make sure that all the licenses and stuff was in order. That took us a longer time than we thought. But I'm actually happy that happened because we got to really build out a really beautiful dashboard for it. So, I mean, you should be able to look at that dashboard every morning and get a full sense of the number of foreclosures in, in, in Miami by zip code, number of building permits, A1, A2, A3s. It, and list of other stuff that's going to give you a nice sense of where real estate is for that day. Now, now, quick question for you, Amir. Um, so you, you, got, you guys are basically, you're corralling all the data. You're going to make the data available. But um, uh, is there anything where you're going to add value to actually interpret the data? Because what, what some people struggle with is that there's so much out there. They don't know what the hell, which, which side is up. Um, is that where the continuing education and some of the other, is there going to be consulting in other words? Or can you sort of it, address there, that? Or are you going to basically just we, We're doing it. We're doing also masterclass videos. Like, I don't know if you saw the masterclasses where they talk to somebody about their field and they get into the nitty gritty of it. So we got like Barbara Corcoran and Sam Zell and people like that talking about, uh, you know, starting a real estate firm or investing in real estate. So we have that part of it as well so that people who, who not necessarily want to get a license or do their continuing education can learn a lot from these experts in the field in these like 50 minute segments. So we started, those are going to be a part of it as well. So but in terms of, of the actual data, they, our trick was to make, you know, we're, we've been in this business for 18 years and even for us, we, the, the data has to be explained to us. So we were like, let's consider somebody who's been in the business for two years or a year. And so the data, we have to really simplify it. And if somebody wants to go deeper and deeper, that should be available. But for the dashboard, we should like really simplify the shit out of it so that you come in there and you could be a layman and understand, understand what's going on in the market. Got it. Got it. Got it. Now, now you guys are currently in, uh, you're in New York, obviously you're in South Florida. 
you're in L.A., Chicago, tri-state area, which is up in the uh, uh, New York area. Uh, any other markets uh, that you're looking at going into in the future, or are you going to p- sort of focus on pro for the time being until we kind of get through this pandemic and the uncertainty with the economics and then maybe look at, um, you know, expanding? Well, now uh, we really want to be in Texas, you know, uh, Houston, Dallas, uh, Austin. Those are like great markets, major real estate markets. A lot of people who invest and participate in the industry in those markets. So we definitely want to uh, go there in the next year. So we'll definitely roll out Texas, uh, if not, uh, hopefully one more city as well. But uh, Texas, the three markets in Texas for sure. And then if uh, we have the resources and the energy to do it, we also like to be in San Francisco. Got it, got it, got it. You know, what we found is that, uh, you know, it's – we have a national section, which we cover national news, but we always took it from the cities we were in. And now, because there's so many uh, journalists who are out there looking for work, we are actually working it in reverse. So we're not saying, hey, we want to go to Houston. Let's find reporters in Houston. We're saying, hey, let's find a really great real estate writer. Oh, they're in Kansas? Okay, well, let's do something in Kansas then. So we're doing it in reverse because it's so much – it's that element of having a good reporter who understands the market, who knows the players and stuff like that. It's, uh, it's very hard to make happen, right? It's not something you could train people for. It's not something they can go to school for. They either have it, they have the experience, they know it or they don't. So we're sort of working it in reverse, like outside of Texas, we're looking for like reporters who are just good. And if they happen to be in Seattle, we'll say, okay, let's go do Seattle. Got it. Got it. Now two Two final questions for you, and, and thank you so much for dedicating, um, you know, all this time. Uh, to, oh, I always like chatting with you. Except I didn't get to chat with you so much. I was talking the whole time, but yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I guess what, one of my questions is is about disruption. Many people will say the real estate industry hasn't been disrupted. Uh, you know, you were talking before about, uh, uh, you know, somebody's mother, they would go out after to pick up the kids from school and they would do the real estate. Well, real estate's still sort of operating that way. You've got a couple companies that have tried to go forward and try to uh, do some things. I'm wondering, what, as somebody who's sitting up here and you're able to see what's going on throughout the country, what do you see going on during the great, or going through this pandemic for the real estate industry? Are we going to see a calling? Are we going to see a contraction? Are we going to see more people getting in the industry? How do you sort of see the real estate uh, hustle, if you will, the broker game? How do you see that changing? If at all, I mean, I wish that you could see my hands. So, like, I have my hands right now, the, the two uh, index fingers touching each other, and it's uh, it's somewhat of a horizontal uh, shape that I'm holding, and that's where the okay. real estate market was for a lot of the brokers. So there was like there was the top brokers that's the tip of my index finger, and then all the other deals would sort of fall on the side. Yeah. And then if you can see my hands right now, I'm bringing my palms closer together. That's where the brokerage business is going. So the top brokers are still going to do their thing. They're still going to transact. They're still going to convert. But then there's going to be a lot less sort of middle-of-the-road brokers. There's just not going to be any room for them, right? So it's going to shrink. There's, there's no other ways to look at it. If you look at the amount of venture capital money from 2017 to 2020, the most amount of venture capital money has gone into prop tech. And the reason for that is not that because people are so interested in uh, real estate, but it's because there hasn't been any real technology all this time. This whole time that we've been saying tech, 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 there hasn't been any real innovations in, in the real estate world. 
And the people are seeing that and they're saying, oh my God, let me invest money in that because look at all these small changes you could do to create tremendous value. In 2009, 2010, you could, there was only two sites you could go to to get like owner information. Like you had to go to Property Shark and CoStar and that was it. Now you got like 50 places. Data has become a lot more available than before. So like you got so many places that are providing data because everybody wants to get into the game. You got a place like CoStar that's valued at $40 billion, right? It's valued at any, more than any real estate company or developer out there, right? It's $40 billion, and they service the real estate industry. Someplace like CoreLogic, valued at $7 billion, just providing data uh, for those markets. And the, the amount of data that's in there, there's a lot more data. It's a lot more available. And you, like you said earlier, like how do you take that data and make it into like actionable uh, sort of how do, how do you make it into actionable data? How do you take that data and make it of value for people who's uh, who's seeing that data and how they can use it? And that's I think that's where a lot of the focus is uh, going into. But you know the amount of money that's going into technology for real estate right now, it's mm-hmm. a lot of it is to eliminate the middleman for mm-hmm. for for lending for buying a house. Uh, you know, for all of this stuff, a lot of it is there to eliminate the middleman. So you got billions of dollars being thrown into the market to sort of kill the brokerage business, right? So that's that's been going on for a long time, but now it's going now it's at a much accelerated uh, sort of a pace. So if you're not like in the top five percent or top, you know, uh, in the in the top of the market as a broker, there isn't much room for you because you you know you could be replaced. By some of the, a lot of this technology that's coming out, unless you're you have you're adding tremendous value to the deal as a broker, and there are some brokers out there. I mean, I was talking to this guy yesterday, you know, and they were asking me who's the best salesperson you've ever seen, and they're so clear. I mean, in the 18 years I've been doing this, I've met with a lot of different salespeople, and right. the ones that stick out, they always happen to be the top of the game. They always happen to know their shit. They always happen to hustle more than everybody else. They are always working a deal. They're always working a deal. There's no, you don't see them at a party and they're just having a drink. They're like, hey, you, you need this? Hey, does your uncle, like they're always working an angle. <laughs> so there's a reason why, you know, they are who they are. And I think there's always going to be a need for those top brokers. They're going to make a lot more money than they did before. And those middle of the road brokers are sort of going to get pushed aside. Got it, got it, got it. And, and I guess the final question, um, uh, uh, Amir, you, you started off, you, you launched a company out in um, Southern California. Ultimately, you sold it out. Um, everybody goes public when you're up in New York. You guys got any plans? You you thinking about that? Uh, is it, uh, you know, you're going to be the next Elon uh, 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 Musk or what? Get, get, shed some insight or create an urban legend. We, we, we would love that. <laughs> right. No, so, you know, for us, you know, it's amazing to have a business and have it, it, it have us have the coverage that we have and not have any investors or have any debt for it, which is a very fortunate place to be in, uh, you know, for us. And, uh, you know, it was, it, you know, we, I never thought that the business would get this big. I never expected it to get this big. So, and I was always very happy with it. Like, I really enjoy the job. I enjoy having different days where like everything is so different and we're covering news and we're doing important stuff and informing a market. So I really love what I do. So, you know, throughout the years, we've had a lot of people who are interested um, in uh, buying us. 
or becoming partners with us, but it was never to the point where I was like, oh yeah, let me, let me bring in a partner. It's, you know, it was, uh, so the money has never been there where I would be like, oh yeah, let me, let me throw it up all up in there. And for me, it has to be something that's so astronomic that it would be worthwhile because after an 18 years bringing someone in now, it's like, it, it would have to be really worth it for me. Or, or going public. You're in New York. You got to yeah. the, the, the knowledge, the capital market. I, I don't even know how that works, but maybe you could help us with that. <laughs> Fantastic. Hey, hey, for anybody anybody who's listening, uh, everybody down here always in Miami, they always talk about getting a New York, good New York slice of pizza. You find any places when you come down and visit Miami where you can get a decent slice of pizza, or do you basically got to get on a plane and fly up to uh, JFK or LaGuardia? You know, it's so funny because uh, I, I happen to think that design in Miami, like the furniture design and just style, I think yeah. it's superior to anything in New York. I also think that Miami has an amazing food scene. I know we, people always talk about the same like four or five restaurants, but there's so many yes. incredible restaurants in Miami. I'm always surprised. There's this, uh, every time I go there, I try to find new stuff and I'm never disappointed. You know, it's always really ambitious stuff, really new stuff. And I don't think it gets the credit. You know, people keep talking about Cipriani's and Casa Tua and all the same, like a handful of restaurants, but there's so many incredible restaurants in Miami that doesn't get any credit. And I think Miami has incredible uh, design sense too. I think it, I love the design sense of Miami. Yeah, but, but I can't give you. I, can, I can't give you. I can't give you advice on pizza. I th I, I heard that uh, Locali has a good pizza, right? Uh, Locali. Okay. Yep. Do you know yep, it? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. No. So no. I, I haven't they, been there. It's and they happen to be in Brooklyn too. I, I wanted to pick a restaurant that wasn't in New York, but uh, yeah. like there's such a you know crossover between New York and Miami. Now, now, Almira, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, maybe they want to pitch you an idea. Maybe they're looking for a job. Maybe they want to buy you out. What's the best way for somebody to get a hold of you? Uh, you could just call the office uh, or like on social media. I'm at uh, Mr. Karangi at M R K O R A N G Y. Okay, and then the office number. It's funny because it's people actually. I, isn't it funny that I, I can get reach people easier by you know uh, DMing them on their Instagram versus going through their office? It's so it actually works for me too. Yeah, exactly. And then what's the number for the office in case somebody wants to go old school on you? Oh, yeah, at 212-505-6270. All right. That's Amir Karangi. He is the founder and the publisher of The Real Deal. As you can see, he's ahead of the curve. He's an entrepreneur, and he's an editorial publisher, something I really love. <laughs> I want to thank him for Thanks, uh, coming on the Count of Vultures podcast. Uh, if you're not yet a subscriber, I'd encourage you to do so wherever you listen to your podcast. If you like what we're doing, go ahead and give us a rating. And then finally, if you have a comment for us, if you want to offer a tip, a criticism, a complaint, a compliment, we want to hear from you. Send an email to inquiry at condovultures.com, I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com. So I'm Peter Zalewski. Hope everybody stays safe, they stay healthy, and we'll talk soon. Ciao, ciao.